Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm here with Sonia Luter. Sonia, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I am excited to have this conversation and see where things go. Sonia serves as the inaugural Director of Financial Health and Wellness with Texas Tech University's School of Financial Planning, where she leads curriculum and continuing education opportunities in the areas of financial psychology, financial therapy, and financial behavior. She's also the founder of Enlight World, I might have not got that right, a research and training consultancy firm for financial planners and therapists. Sorry, I should have gone over the pronunciation beforehand with you, but was I close? It's excellent. Okay, perfect. And I reached out to you over LinkedIn after I read an article that you were quoted in the New York Times about this kind of burgeoning world of financial therapy. And we've had a couple of folks on to talk about it, but I'd love to get your experience. I mean, this is something that's relatively new in the world of of finance and and wealth management. How did you find yourself so involved with it? Yeah. I don't know if it's as new as some of us would maybe think that it is. I was one of the co-founders of the Financial Therapy Association, and that was back in 2008. So it depends what you count as new. New relative to financial planning, for sure. But I think the discussion of financial therapy is a lot more prevalent right now, not only because of the CFP board's new competency of the psychology of financial planning, which certainly has heightened the awareness of the human side of financial planning more than it has in the past. But also just generally speaking, people are more stressed about their money. Money has been a top stressor for Americans for at least the last decade. 
But even still, every year there's something new that just blows your mind that has come into the area of personal finances that can cause a person stress. So I think there's a lot of reasons why financial therapy has become more relevant. I do see a difference between financial therapy and the psychology of financial planning, but they are certainly working together and bringing some of that awareness to consumers. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think relatively new, it, it depends on what your timeline is, but it does seem like from other people we've talked to on the show, 2008 was a big turning point for financial therapy in terms of it being on one side, clients were needing that given the stressors that were occurring in the market and everything that was happening in the world. And a lot of financial advisors were unprepared to have that skill set and that toolkit to deal with the needs that their clients had. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point to talk about it in terms of a toolkit. We're not necessarily trying to solve an issue per se. And I think that's really where the difference between this idea of financial therapy and psychology of financial planning comes into play. Therapy, the root of that, thera, means to treat. So it means that you're trying to intervene in some way and really change the course for that client. The psychology of financial planning, on the other hand, ology means study of, of course, and then psych, mind. So we are studying the mind as it relates to money with the psychology of financial planning. We are gaining an awareness of what's going on. We're not necessarily doing anything about it. We're just heightening our awareness. So I think that's really a key distinction for people as they are looking into financial therapy or increasing some of their knowledge or skill sets in financial therapy. The idea of it is really that you will provide some of that intervention with the client and whether that's helping them decrease their stress or increase their communication with their partner, you're actively doing something with financial therapy. Yeah. So I'd love to get a little bit deeper into the differentiation there because I think it's important, right? You've got the psychology of financial planning and then financial therapy. If you're a client or somebody who is looking for a financial advisor, are there, like, what would you ask in terms of certifications or background? If this is something that was important to you on the client side, what would you want to see in the financial advisor had done the work in order to have the skills? Yeah, that's a great question and one that could stir up a lot of controversy, perhaps. In my good, mind, good. controversy is good. Let's yeah. hear it. What's the, the drama in the financial therapy yeah, world? Yeah, for sure, drama. There are some people who believe that you need to have a background in therapy. So to be a licensed marriage and family therapist, a licensed social worker, a clinical psychologist, et cetera. Personally, I do not believe that you need to have a clinical degree to be able to help clients with the human side of financial planning. I think there's lots of ways that you can incorporate empathy into your financial planning to where you can apply more of that active listening with your clients, um, ways that you can help them identify their core values. So how do you know if a financial planner is going to do those things? One, yes, you can look and see if they have a clinical background in mental health. Easy check mark. They have got the skills. They have practiced. You are good to go with that person. The Financial Therapy Association actually has a list of people who meet those qualifications. The Financial Therapy Association also has what they call the CFT, Certified Financial Therapist, 
And those are people who are not necessarily licensed mental health professionals, but that they have some sort of awareness and training, have passed an exam as it relates to some of these therapeutic techniques. So that's another thing that you could look for, the C of T behind a person's name. But probably one of the best things that I would recommend is just talk with the person. Like immediately with the person, you get a gut reaction, always. Whether we want to or not, we get this gut reaction of, do we trust this person? Do we feel like we can engage in a conversation with them and and be transparent with them? Those are really the things that you're looking for. Referrals, it's a top way that people find their financial planners. I think that's probably a really big thing right there in terms of, do other people have these conversations? If this is the direction you want to go with your financial planning to incorporate some of those therapeutic elements, then ask your friends. And when you're out in social settings and people are talking about their experiences, take note and and go for those people. So I think those things are much more important than the clinical training. And in, in terms of the certification, I think it's pretty clear that the client side, there's a lot of appetite for this. People want that type of relationship that you demonstrated. And especially now that the investment side has become so much more Automated. product of, yeah, I mean, <laughs> robo-advisors and low-cost index funds. And I think clients are getting a lot smarter in terms of understanding the investment side, but they still want that human connection relationship. And that's really where I think the next evolution of the financial advisory and business will go. Yeah, I agree. I've said this before. I don't know if you've heard me say it or not, that I think we are experiencing right now the next evolution of financial planning. And we don't even know that it's happening right now. But in 20 years, maybe not 20 years, I shouldn't put a number on it. I don't know. At some point, we are going to look back and think it was absolutely crazy that financial planners were not incorporating financial therapy into their practice. Just like we would look back now and think it's absolutely ridiculous that people would not be fiduciaries when they're working with a person in their personal finance issues. Like, I think it will just, this is the evolution. I don't know how long it will take to get there, but at some point, all of us as financial planners will have training and do some form of financial therapy. And so are you seeing that play out on the financial advisory industry side? Are you seeing more organizations, big enterprises and institutions coming to the table and either requiring it from their financial advisors or asking you to engage and, and learn best practices in the space? I feel like this is another area to where the field is pretty split and it's hard to see the other side depending on which one you're on. So there's certainly advisors who want training in this area, and they're grabbing up every last bit of training that they can get, either through organizations like the Financial Therapy Association or just reading books or maybe even getting a clinical degree. Maybe they're going down that route. But then there's the other advisors whom we both know who do not see how this fits into their practice. And they don't want anything to do with it. They are a financial planner. They will handle the finances. And they don't see how the finances are connected to a person's core values and how this is connected to their communication, how a lack of trust and transparency could actually 
result in a very bad financial plan if they've got other accounts that they're holding that they haven't told their financial advisor about, or maybe they have other personal relationships that they're supporting or that they've promised part of their estate to somebody, but they're not telling their financial planner because they don't think their financial planner will agree with it. So, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here. If you're listening to this, obviously you have some sort of interest in financial therapy. So you see the value in it, but I think there's a fair bit of people who have not made the connection of why we need to include financial therapy skills and training for financial planners. Well, and and we discussed this earlier briefly, but it seems like since 2008, there's a catastrophe every year. Right. Something either geopolitically, macroeconomics, certain investment theses. Just recently, we're recording this in November of 2022. Crypto is blown up. I mean, BlockFi just announced bankruptcy today. The whole industry is cratering. A lot of people had some legitimate, you know, a lot of retail investors and individuals had a substantial amount of money in these firms. These things seem to be happening sooner and sooner, and they're very emotional. Yes. For investors, I mean, so it, it seems like now would be the time for people to embrace this part of the industry and this work that you all are doing. Yeah. And let's just pretend for a second that you're not really interested in those things, like the clients on their own, they'll figure it out. They can deal with their own stress. We keep talking about 2008. Dr. Brad Klontz and I did a study from that gathering data from that era, from the financial advisors. And what we saw was that the financial advisors, I haven't looked at the statistics in a while, but a fair number of them experienced symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, after the 2008 collapse. So even if you don't care about the stress of your clients, like at the most extreme, maybe caring about yourself would be a motivation to look at these issues in terms of, okay, well, what's going on for me physiologically and how's this impacting my ability to do my job at its fullest? How is this impacting my personal relationships? If I'm dealing with the crypto collapse and all of these clients are calling me because they don't know what to do, it's causing me stress. I'm taking that stress home. My health is getting worse, my physical, my mental health. So, I mean, it's all very much related. And so I think it, I mean, for me, it's such an easy sell of why we need to have more awareness of financial therapy and more training in these therapeutic skills or application of these therapeutic skills because it impacts all of us and the way that I work with my clients, how they are functioning in their lives, but also how I'm functioning in my own life. So that's an interesting point of view. Would, Would you recommend that clients who are interviewing financial advisors as part of the diligence process Ask those financial advisors if they themselves have therapists that they go to regularly? That's a fun question. Uh, Another person I work with a little is Rick Kaler. And we've talked about this a number of times. And he is a very strong believer in you can only take the client as far as you have gone. So if you're not willing to discuss these issues, relationship issues, stress issues, you're not going to be able to have that conversation with your client. So I dodged the question, what do I believe? (laughs) If you are not willing to have those conversations yourself, I do think it will be very challenging to have those conversations with another person. Yeah. 
Do you have someone that you speak to personally, like a financial therapist or a therapist? Yeah, I use not a real person, but more of the self-help options, which I think are also really good. The modules that you can go through and and work on decreasing your own stress and where you can work on starting conversations with your significant other that maybe you haven't had in the past. So I think that's a viable option too. And so maybe that's why I don't totally agree with Rick's perspective on you must have your own person. I do think you need to do your own work. And maybe Rick would agree with me there that it doesn't necessarily need to be a person. But yes, you do need to challenge yourself in these areas. So what does this look like in practice? If like, How do you implement these best practices, these, these concepts when you're engaging with a client? Yeah, I love this idea of physiological stress because it's something that we cannot trick our mind out of. Like it's a tangible thing. It's very black and white, which is kind of nice for financial planners who tend to be more quantitatively focused. And the way we can assess a person's physiological stress is really quite easy with our skin temperature. So what happens when we're in this heightened physiological stress state is our body is going into the fight or flight response. And we are physically preparing to leave the room or we are preparing to mentally check out or freeze. And when that happens, this biological response that we can't stop, we sense danger, our brain activates fight or flight. And when that happens, blood is literally going to our heart to prepare for that physical reaction. And not all of it, but it's concentrating in the heart to prepare for that action. And when that happens, our fingers get colder because the blood is moving away from our fingers more towards the heart to get ready to pump and run or or hide. And when that happens, so not only are our fingers colder, you can physically feel the difference, but there's less blood flowing in our brain, which means we're making decisions based off of habit, based off of quick emotion-based decisions, very present-focused, very myopic. We do not care about the long-term future. We are only concerned in that moment, how do I get away or how do I fight through this situation? very now. And this is not good for financial planning, obviously, or relationships, obviously. So when you are meeting with clients, I think that's one of the first things you should do is take note of their physiological stress. If you are lucky enough to be meeting in person with your clients, shake their hands. And once you teach yourself what it feels like to have colder hands, it's very easy to spot it in other people. If you're meeting with them on Zoom, like we are doing, Look for other indicators that they're in a heightened physiological stress state, like their eyes are darting all around or they're jittering or they're asking you questions of what did you just say? Or I'm sorry, I don't I don't remember what we were talking about. Something that indicates that they are not physically there with you and or not mentally there with you during that conversation. So I think that's probably a really key thing that I would suggest all of us do is learn a little bit about this physiological stress and what it looks like. You can ask a person how stressed they are, and they might know, but they might also be fooling themselves in terms of, I say I'm not stressed because that's what I say. But in reality, my brain is not functioning at its optimal capacity. 
Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download. And then, you know, you've used the word stress a lot. And I think that is the, the correct adjective when it comes to how clients respond to these financial gyrations that are occurring in the market. What are some tips or, or strategies that you can use as a financial advisor to help manage your client's stress? Yeah, physically moving really does help decrease a person's stress. I know it sounds cliche that if we just exercise more, our stress will decrease. It's a scientific fact that that is the case. So I'm not saying you need to exercise with your clients, but you could stand up during your meetings. Again, if you're lucky enough to be meeting with them in person, physically plan to move up sometime during the meeting to go look at a bulletin board or go look at a different office or have something planned in the hallway that you need to go look at. Something that at the very least, gets them to stand up and move around. If you are on a Zoom call, trying to incorporate that in some way as well is also very nice. Being outside is actually a really good way to decrease a person's stress. So that's another really good idea. But aside from those physical activities, what I would recommend is just pausing and asking the client when they come in, what's on your mind today? It seems so simple, but many of us are busy. We we have another meeting that's starting in an hour. We need to quick, 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 get done with our agenda and move on. But recognizing that you may not get to accomplish all of your agenda, that's far less important than addressing what's on the mind of clients. So being willing to put their needs, all of their needs, financial and otherwise, first and simply asking them what's on their mind and what would they like to discuss in that meeting today. And then saving some time at the end and asking them at the end, is there anything else that you would like to cover today? And some of us, I think, do that, but it's more of a check the box type of thing. And we're not really wanting an answer. And if we're not really wanting an answer, our body language will show that. And our clients will react accordingly. Yeah, and I think it's all really useful and helpful, but I agree with you. I think the industry is, some people are just not there, I think, emotionally or willing to go there in the financial advisory world. But I, I do think that will change because the, the demand on the client side will be pretty strong. What are you seeing thematically across the industry, you know, just the embrace of concepts like financial therapy, the psychology of financial planning. Are there other kind of trends that you're seeing given that, I don't know what the stats are, but it's something like a huge number of financial advisors are, you know, like 65 or 70 year old white men. Are you seeing this transition away from that generation of financial advisors into younger cohorts? Are there big trends that you're seeing within that population? Oh, I don't know if I would say trends in terms of the demographic side of things, but what I have seen in terms of a trend is 
a willingness and even a desire to incorporate more of these concepts into practice, but not knowing how to charge for that and not knowing how to make time for that. I think those are the two big things that I have heard advisors say that, yes, I'm really interested in this and I want to engage my clients in these deeper conversations, but I don't have any more hours in the week and I can't add one more thing. And if I am adding one more thing, I need to get paid for it. I can't just do this for free. And my response back is we've figured out these issues before, largely with the use of technology, which we alluded to earlier with the investment planning. So what are some of these other elements that could be more efficient and free up more time with our clients? Do we really need to do a full plan presentation with the client? Could that be trimmed down and we could spend more time in the discussion? So I don't know that I have the perfect answers for that, but I do think that there are ways that we can address some of these themes that I have heard from financial advisors. So I don't think it's an impossible barrier by any means. And what about this broader challenge of financial literacy across the general population? You know, I was just interviewing the podcast before this one. I had a financial advisor on who specializes in working with women who are going through a divorce or post-divorce or have just been widowed. And we talked about this. She went to this great undergraduate college, very successful, but you know, there's no financial planning or financial literacy curriculum in high school or college, really. And it's crazy to me that we don't have some type of nationalized process or you know education that people can use as a resource to learn about what impacts literally every day of their life. Yeah. There are actually some states that require financial literacy in the high school, but how they do that varies widely. So this might be the social studies teacher teaching a financial literacy unit because it's a state requirement. So that is far from sufficient. At Texas Tech, what we have in the School of Financial Planning is a personal finance major and minor to where students do learn this content that you're talking about, whether they want to be a financial planner or not. Right now, I am teaching a course called Life, Love, and Money. It's perfect. And I have students from all aspects of life, the divorced parents, the, I think I do have a widow in there, and the traditional college student. And all of them are saying the same things in terms of, wow, this is really great content. All of the students should have this. So there is for sure a big hole. I think that some states are trying to get this content into the public schools. There are some universities who have these courses not just Texas Tech, other universities have them as well, but they're not widely known. And that's only going to be for the people who go to college and happen to find their way into those courses. So I think what we do need is more publicly accessible information that is targeted not just at financial literacy. So if you go to name any financial literacy website, it's largely focused on how to make a budget and maybe even how to balance your accounts. That's really great information, but it's also not super engaging. It's not really tied to a person's values. And it's most definitely not addressing the things that they're going to be most stressed about, whether that's repaying their student loans or how am I going to be able to afford to pay for my child's education? What am I going to do with this 
massive wealth that I've accumulated and my family doesn't agree with my wishes. I mean, there's a whole host of issues that are maybe more important here in terms of what people want from quote unquote financial literacy. It's more of the, you've already said it, what consumers want is the financial therapy stuff. So I don't know that there's a really good publicly accessible domain for that yet, but hopefully we will start to see more of that become available. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I've got good friends of ours here in Nashville. They recently received a a pretty sizable gift from one of the parents. And, you know, they were asked, because I'm in the financial services space generally, I mean, I'm private equity real estate, so I I don't have the bona fides to help them through this. And they just kind of asked, well, how can I learn about how to manage this? It's like, man, I really didn't know where to send them even. I sent them a link to Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money just because I think to your point, you can get a financial advisor to help you kind of manage the investment side of it. But the bigger question is really like, what's your relationship going to be to these assets? Do you know, do you want to spend it? Do you want to save it? Do you want to give it? Do you? And those are much deeper questions that I think people don't even know how to have those conversations. They're not equipped to ask the right questions around it. And so I think that's the yeah. broader narrative. Yeah. And to some of your examples as well, I have a friend who got divorced later in life and now she's on her own by within five years of retirement. She could retire now by an age definition, but she's terrified. She says, well, what if I run out of money? And tell her, you won't, like you've done all of the proper planning. But for her, she just needs that person to check in and be like, okay, what are some of the concerns? How should I protect myself? And really just having that broader financial support system that you might not otherwise have access to. So as we wrap the conversation up, what is kind of best practice for how to have this conversation about, let's just call it kind of personal finance with your spouse and your children? Do you have thoughts there? Yeah, I do. I would say schedule the call, the conversation. I know that sounds impersonal. But unless you have an intentional time that you're going to engage in these conversations with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, it's not going to happen because money is stressful and we don't want to talk about it. I would much rather talk about the game or the plans for the weekends way more than I would like to talk about our personal finances. Even if I am in a good position, that is way down on the list of fun things to talk about. So being intentional about it, whether you schedule these conversations to happen every month, every quarter, I think doing it at least annually is a good idea to kind of reevaluate what your goals are and assess, do you agree with where you still are? Do we want to modify our goals? An obvious time to do this is tax time. You file your taxes. We have just gathered up all of our financial documents. Let's just have a quick conversation, maybe a longer conversation about what this means for us. Yeah, I mean, I think I've heard that from other people, the intentionality of monthly, quarterly, whatever, but getting it on the calendar is like half the battle, even though it can be a little awkward. It's not Mm -hmm. maybe how you want to spend your date night, but otherwise these things just never happen and these conversations don't occur and that compounds upon itself. Another thing that the scheduling does is puts both people on an equal playing field. If I came to my spouse tonight and said, I think that we need to reevaluate our long-term financial goals, 
he's going to be super stressed out because here I have been stewing about the things that I want to talk about and and maybe my ideas for what the goals are. And this wasn't even on his radar at all. So it's going to be very unproductive conversation. So when you schedule it, we can both have our equal opportunity to develop what we are thinking in that regards. And what about children? I've got two boys, they're nine and six. To my knowledge, the school they go to does not have a financial literacy piece of the curriculum. Are there things that parents can be doing to help kind of socialize these concepts and ideas and, and put a framework of values around your personal financial life with your children? I also have a nine and seven-year-old boy and a younger daughter as well. And one of the things that I do with them is whenever they get cash, which we almost never have cash in our house, but when they get cash for a birthday or for a holiday, we will take it out and convert it into dollar bills. It's usually easier and have them decide how much they want to spend now, how much they want to save and how much they want to give to charity. And I let them pick what they want to do. If you want to give it to church, that's great. If you want to give it to the school, that's great. If you want to give it to whoever's outside the grocery store that day, that's great too. But we physically divide up the money so that they get that visual illustration of what money is and how we as adults have to use our money. And also another thing that we do is we talk to the kids pretty openly about how much money we make and how much things cost when they ask, well, so-and-so got the new Nintendo Switch, why can't we? And really just being intentional about that in terms of, yes, we could buy the Nintendo Switch, but that means that we're not going to buy this other thing, or that means that we're going to have to spend less on a vacation or whatever the case may be, but really help them understand this idea of opportunity cost and what money actually is. My younger daughter is just four. And this was even when she was three, I think, that she was pretending to buy stuff from the store. And she found some sort of little device. I don't even, I think it was a picture frame or something that had a slight slot at the bottom of it. And she was using that as her credit card machine. So in her mind, that's how we buy stuff. We just stick stuff in the machine and away we go. And I think that's very true of a lot of children that there's just no real concept of where money comes from. Yeah. And, and I just think as Americans, our culture, at least the way I was raised, we just didn't talk about money. It was just not something that was, it was almost impolite, honestly. Yeah. And the other day, my nine-year-old asked me, they asked my wife and, and me how much we made yeah. of her work. And I immediately responded, I was like, that's an inappropriate question. But it's a totally valid thing that we should have a discussion about. But you Did just, you eventually just... tell him? <laughs> I did not feel comfortable telling him the number without any context, I guess. So we're putting together a plan with our wealth manager to think about educating them at, around our world. But yeah, I just I just didn't feel comfortable sharing with it. And then I just worried about him telling other people, right? And what that would maybe imply for his relationships. And so, yeah, and I, I, I did not, honestly. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting concept to think about and one that if we had another hour, I would dig deeper <laughs> into this in terms of does it really matter for his relationships or does it matter for your relationships and how that might influence if he goes home and tells his parents, what does that mean for you yeah. and your wife? Well, I mean, I think a lot of your 
clients who have a certain level of wealth, there's a lot of guilt associated with it. Oh, for sure. And I know I certainly suffer from that myself. Like I don't deserve it or I feel like I need to do something with it. And so I just have a level of discomfort with it oftentimes. And I think that's that was demonstrated with how I responded to his question. I think that's a fair point and one that my husband and I struggle with too because we get paid well. And both of us came from very poor families to where, I mean, there was no vacations. There were no new clothes every year. It was bare minimum types of things. So for us, we are extremely wealthy. And when our kids ask how much money we have, they don't usually ask how much money we make. They ask how much money do we have? Mm. And so I come back with, well, what do you mean? Like in the checking account? Or do you mean that we could spend? Or do you mean of all of our stuff, like the house and the cars and all of these other things? And really try to figure out what it is that they're asking. And ultimately, it comes down to a conversation with them of, we are very fortunate. And we have more than a lot of other people have, more than some of your friends might have. And so that's why we like to help other people out when we get asked. Because they also ask about that too. like. Well, why do we have to take food to school? We're like, well, it's just something that we're lucky enough that we're able to do. So that's how we do it. And other people don't have as much as we have right now, but maybe someday they will. And then they'll get to give food back to the school as well. Right. And my wife, who has a master's and a PhD in early childhood development, had a much better response, which was basically, that's an interesting question. What makes you ask that? Like, Mm -hmm. why are you asking this? Right. Because if he's worried about, the ability for us to pay for him to go to school or X, Y, Z, that's really the thing that you can address. It probably isn't really a number in his head that he cares about what the number is. Right. There's probably a deeper, deeper reasoning there. So, Same is true of adults when they ask these questions, right? Right. Yeah, ask totally. Ask them. Well, that's an interesting question. Why do you ask? Yeah. Well, Sonia, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really interesting conversation and the work you're doing, I think, frankly, is really important. It's going to become even more important in the industry moving forward. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. Please leave a rating and a commentary of what part of the conversation you enjoyed the most. And a question we ask people to come on the show is, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I love going for walks outside. I live in the country, so when I go for a walk, it's really quite quiet. The only thing I hear are the birds and whatever animals might be out. And I just find it really relaxing to have that time outside every day. Great. Thank you for sharing that. And if people are interested in connecting with you about the work you're doing, I know you have you wear multiple different hats, but what's the best way for them to get connected and engaged with everything that you're up to? You can find me on LinkedIn, Sonia Luter. Awesome. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for joining us and I look forward to staying in touch. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.